Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 155. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter, you can like me on Facebook, and you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just going out to brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you've got all my social media buttons. And while you're at brianmcclanahan.com, you can give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly. So go on out there and do that. You get an email from me a couple of times a week, not, not too much. Also, if you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way to help keep the podcast going, help keep the lights on. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to sign up. And, of course, I've got two courses up there right now, one on Alexander Hamilton and one on Secession. Another course is forthcoming, hopefully the, at the end of the spring. So look for that. If you do subscribe to my uh, McClanahan Academy, you will get information on coupons or discounts that I send out periodically for my courses. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to redbubble.com and doing a search for Brian McClanahan. You'll find all my Brian McClanahan Show gear, t-shirts, cups, uh, clocks, wall clocks, all kinds of cool stuff. So go out to redbubble.com and get your Brian McClanahan gear. And always, if you do get some of that gear, you can send me an image of you wearing a shirt or drinking with the coffee cup, whatever it is, and I'll put it on social media. It'll be a lot of fun. So going out there and do that. I appreciate all the support you can give me. And uh, thank you for supporting The Brian McClanahan Show. Now... Uh, I want to talk about something that I think is very important to our understanding of liberty. And so we use this term oftentimes, you know, American liberty, I believe in liberty. And uh, what does that actually mean, though? And, and it actually gets back to this whole idea of think locally, act locally. This is a discussion of culture. Because I've said on this podcast several times, we're actually dealing with a situation in America where we have many incompatible things. It's not just that some people are playing baseball and some people are playing football, and we're playing with two different rules and two different games on two different fields. That is true politically. I mean, if you look at what's going on, say, with um, issues like sanctuary cities or legalization of marijuana or whatever the case may be, or abortion. I mean, you look at some of the issues that are are gun rights. You look at issues that are often considered to be right-wing or left-wing and we talk about these things, what we're really talking about is, is a cultural issue. This is a culture war, and of course, people have talked about that over and over again. America is going through a cultural war. But at the heart of that is a conception of liberty that are incompatible, or that is incompatible between groups of people in different sections, different states. And so if we understand that, if we understand that this is an incompatible situation and that what we need is an amicable divorce or at least a structure that will allow for those incompatible things to flourish within a union that has certain defined charges and those certain defined charges are things like commerce and defense and that's what the Constitution was designed to do to ensure that we had a free trade zone between states and that the states could be defended against invasion. But other than that, 
Everything else was left to the states. And we understand if you look at the culture of America in 1790 or 1780 or 1770 or 1760 or heck, even 1680, if we understand that the culture of America at the time, there wasn't a uniform culture of America. There were several cultures in America, and those cultures were supported by this decentralized structure of America, then we can understand the union would work. But it only works if we don't have a top-down management style. We don't have that. The one-size-fits-all government that it seems like both parties want. The problem is we've got two political parties in America, and that's it. We've got two political parties that believe in nationalism, and they believe in a one-size-fits-all paradigm for America. If the Republicans are in power, it's their vision for America that's one-size-fits-all. If the Democrats are in power, it's their vision for America that's one-size-fits-all. And they're going to force it down the throats of the public, if there is such a thing as an American people or an American public, which I disagree with. But they're going to force it down the throats of the people that live in the United States. And they're going to say, you're going to like this culture, you're going to like this political culture, or you're going to be persecuted in one way or another whatever that may be. And this gets to the heart of liberty. So you have libertarians talk a lot about liberty. We believe in liberty. What kind of liberty, though, is the question? Because you could have people that aren't libertarians saying, we believe in liberty too. And I'll give you a nice example of that. I don't think anyone would confuse Franklin Roosevelt of being a libertarian in any way. But yet, he certainly espoused the type of liberty that people in America believe is, could be, libertarian. When he made his inaugural address in 1933, he made the very famous statement, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Think about that. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so Roosevelt later on created his second Bill of Rights, which served as the basis of for the great society of Lyndon Johnson and virtually every Democratic talking point from that point forward. And if you look at that second Bill of Rights, and if you examine what it said, essentially what they're saying in that second Bill of Rights is people have the right to have freedom from poverty. They have a right, they have a freedom, a liberty to education, a liberty, a freedom for a job a right to those things, and that comes down to a liberty. So you see, these people believe in a certain type of liberty. It's a freedom from fear. So when you hear people talk about, well, I deserve, uh, I deserve to have the government pay for my house. I deserve to have the government pay for my clothing, for my job, for my school. What they're saying is they have a, they have a right to a liberty, a freedom from want or fear. It is a communal liberty over an individual liberty. It's a certain type of liberty, incompatible with other types of American liberty. This is cultural. You find this in areas of the United States that were heavily dominated by a northern conception of liberty, more importantly, a Puritan conception of liberty. And it doesn't matter where they live now because that has been exported all over the United States. When you have the Tide Pod generation stand up and say, 
we have a freedom, we have the right not to be afraid of these things. They're, they're talking about this freedom from fear that Franklin Roosevelt talked about. To them, that's liberty. Yet at the same time, they also bristle at having to have clear backpacks because they're not understanding their incongruous conceptions of liberty. What do they want? Do they want a freedom from fear or do they want a freedom to? You see, there are two types of things here going on. And this is the problem with American education because we don't ever talk about culture. We don't ever hash these things out. We simply say that Patrick Henry and his conception of liberty is the same as John Adams and his conception of liberty. And they're, they're entirely different. Or we say that uh, the Virginians were just good Americans, the same as the good Americans from Massachusetts, or that these Virginians were good Americans, the same as good Americans from Quaker, Pennsylvania, or that these individuals from the back country of America were good Americans who believed in liberty, the same liberty that you would find in Massachusetts. This, this is completely untrue. They are incompatible things. And if we understand these incompatible things, we can understand that what we need is a decentralized type of political structure in America that would foster this type of liberty. And when we talk about libertarians, we have to understand what type of liberty we're talking about. So I'm actually going to give you some examples of this from a wonderful book. And I've talked about it before. Uh, I think on this podcast, I know I've mentioned on the Abbeville Institute podcast, but it's David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, and he actually has, a, this is a cultural history, it's a massive cultural history of colonial America, the best that's ever been written. It's about a thousand pages, it's not light reading, you're not going to go into it and think, yeah, I'm going to knock this out in a day, It's gonna. you're going to have to chew this book. There's so much in it about culture, and if you understand culture, when you can't have political decentralization without culture. Political decentralization has to defend something. So when you look at groups like the 10th Amendment Center, for example, wonderful group, you have to understand culture is at the heart of all these political disagreements around America. You have to get to culture, and we have to understand that, and we have to believe in each other and saying, you know what, I respect your culture is different from mine, why don't we just have a fence? Good fences make good neighbors. This is what Robert Frost was talking about. Why don't we have a fence between these things? Why don't I not preach to you about my culture and saying my culture is superior to yours? Why don't I just respect that you have yours and I have mine and we have these fences? And as long as we're willing to support each other in a common union for common general purposes, which would only be commerce and defense, we'd be good with that. You can regulate what you want in your state. We'll regulate what we want in our state. We'll regulate, or maybe we even de decentralize it more than that. Maybe it needs to be smaller political communities. We have to understand, and as I've talked about on this podcast before, when the United States took its first census in 1790, you had 4 million people in it. That's the size of Alabama today. And that was considered to be too large to be governed by a central authority. So maybe even Alabama today is too large to be governed by a central, central authority. Certainly California is. 
You look at the size of California or the size of Texas or the size of, of Alaska. Or you take geographic areas, but not just that population size. Certainly Florida, New York, some of these states that are huge in terms of population. Maybe they're too large to be governed by a strong central authority. Maybe they need to decentralize even more and allow for the pockets of diversity within those particular states. Real diversity. But let me talk about these cultural differences in these colonies. And so what Hackett, what, what Fisher does, what David Hackett Fisher does, is break it down to four folkways that were dominant in the American colonies in the 17th century, going into the 18th century. And, of course, there were other cultures here, but these were the dominant British folkways. And the United States, regardless of how people freak out when you say this, is an Anglo-American creation. It's an Anglo creation. We have Anglo-American institutions. That is our political structure. Nothing else created that. It is created by the British. And thank God it is. Thank God we don't have a unitarian, uh, a unitary model, not unitarian, a unitary model like the French, a monarchical system like the French where the center controls everything. Thank God, well, I mean, we do have that now, but that's not the political tradition that we actually were given through our inheritance. We've just kind of adopted that. This is why everyone pushes for the center to do everything. But I want to start with Massachusetts. Massachusetts, because Massachusetts had this conception of liberty that is alien to everywhere else in America. Really, it was the, it was the deep north that was the strange other, the peculiar other of America. Their conception of liberty, as Hackett Fisher says in this particular, I'm going to quote him. First, liberty to the Puritans often describes something which belonged not to an individual, but to an entire community. For two centuries, the founders and leaders of Massachusetts wrote of liberty of New England, or the liberty of Boston, or the liberty of the town. This usage continued from the great migrations to the War of Independence and even beyond. Samuel Adams, for example, wrote more often about the liberty of America than about the liberty of individual Americans. This idea of collective liberty, or public liberty as it was sometimes called, was thought to be consistent with close restraints upon individuals. In Massachusetts, these individual restrictions were numerous and often very confining. During the first generation, nobody could live in the colony without approval of the general court. Settlers, even of the highest rank, were sent prisoners to England for expressing divers dangerous opinions, or merely because the court judged them to be persons unmet to inhabit here. Others were not allowed to move within the colony except by special permission of the general court. So, he says, this idea of collective liberty was also expressed in many bizarre obligations which New England towns collectively imposed upon their members. And so, he gives an example. Uh, in one town, no single man could marry until he had killed six blackbirds and three crows, or three crows. And this is just strange stuff, but this is Puritan Massachusetts. This is their conception of liberty. This is what Roosevelt said, the freedom from fear, the freedom from want, the freedom from the tyranny of circumstance. You see, your existence is just a circumstance. 
We need to have freedom from that. And to do that, we need government to do it. And the modern conception of it. I don't want to be afraid that somebody can do something to me, so I'm going to take away their individual liberties so that can't happen. I don't want to be afraid that I'm going to be with left, left without an income, so I'm going to ensure that the government provides a guaranteed income. I don't want to be afraid that I'm going to lose my house, so I want the government to provide guaranteed housing. I don't want to be afraid that I won't be able to eat, so I want the government to provide food. Now, certainly the Puritans wouldn't go that far. They didn't have this type of communal structure. They weren't communists. In fact, far from it in a lot of different ways. But they certainly had a concept of liberty that would lend to that type of political structure. Without question, it would lend to that type of political structure. Because ultimately, if you say, look, the community is more important than the individual, we can restrict whatever liberties we like in the name of the community. Because the community is greater than any one part. Now certainly for most libertarians, that's not the case. But what you find is that people could say, well, I mean, we're advocating a certain type of liberty. By taking away your firearms, for example. That's a certain type of liberty. That is my liberty not to be afraid of you. I don't have to worry about you then. Because you don't have the means to hurt me with a firearm. Uh, I don't have to worry about if I say, you're going to give me your tax money so that I can prop myself up. I don't have to worry about eating then. I don't have to worry about having a house or clothes or even a job. I don't have to worry about those things anymore. I can do other things because the community is going to take care of me. That is a certain type of liberty, and it's a very powerful siren song that crashes many people along those rocks and leads to their consumption. Because at the end of the day, as we know, this type of political system doesn't work. But, certainly, it is a very powerful, powerful message. Now contrast that with the other forms of liberty that were in America in the 17th century and other forms of English conception of liberties in other colonies. So let's look at some of the other colonies. Now, Fisher then goes on to Virginia. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about Virginia than the others. I'm going to conclude with Virginia. But in Virginia, their conception of liberty was much different. He calls it hegemonic liberty, where the ruling aristocracy maintained its own liberty at the expense of others. Uh, but certainly this type of liberty allowed for another thing that I'm getting into in the end of this. But uh, he actually brings up Edmund Burke and what Burke said about the southern colonies. Uh, he said, quote, Edmund Burke, The fact is so that these people of the southern colonies are much more strongly and with a higher and more stubborn spirit attend attached to liberty than those to the northward. Now he's talking about individual liberty here. And such a people, the haughtiness of uh, domination combines with the spirit of freedom, fortifies it, and renders it invincible. So what he says, what, what Hackett Fisher says is, Yet another expansive possibility in hegemonic liberty existed in its conception of freedom as a condition of social independence. 
The higher a person's social status, the more independent he was thought to be. Great planters took special pride in their independence. Thus, Landon Carter characterizes a state which he called Sabine Halls, an excellent little fortress built on a rock of independency. Their home was their castle. I mean, this is that your, your domain, your little fiefdom. You express your own liberty there. No one could abridge that liberty. It's an amazing conception. And Fisher actually says this. So excited was this ideal of hegemony over self that every gentleman fell short. But the ideal itself was pursued for many generations. So it was also not just uh, hegemony over others, but over yourself. You had to master yourself. At its best, it created a true nobility of character in Virginian gentlemen such as George Washington, Robert E. Lee, and George Marshall. I mean, my gosh, he could be crucified for saying this. He put Robert E. Lee in that with, with Washington and George Marshall, of course, who was a 20th century figure. The popular images of these men are not historical myths. It's not a myth. Robert E. Lee is not a myth. The more one learns of them, the greater one's respect one becomes. Their character was the product of a cultural idea. So, Washington and Lee are the same. It's a cultural idea that Fisher says that none of them ever reached, they never attained the ideal of the hegemonic liberty that they wanted over themselves, but they certainly strove. It's, it's the idea of the gentleman. They certainly strove for it all the time. They just never reached it. But they wanted it. They espoused it. And it was a, it was a type of liberty that's important. Because when they demanded liberty, what they also said is we demanded of ourselves, we demand a certain type of culture of ourselves that allows for this expression. You have to have restraints, in other words, to make this liberty exist. Liberty given to all, in their mind, was dangerous if people didn't understand how to use it. Now, it didn't mean they, the, that the community was more important. No, no. And they didn't believe in restricting liberty for everyone. They did believe in restricting it for some. Those who could not handle it didn't get it. It was a different concept of liberty. If they didn't believe you could handle the liberty, you weren't going to have it. And certainly, that had to do with a class or caste system in Virginia. And in some parts, if they, if they drew this out, of course, race at the time in the 18th or 19th century would have been part of it. But this is something that people wrestle with now. In order to have a certain type of liberty, it requires that people have a certain type of rearing. You can't just give it to everybody and think that they're going to they're going to be fine with it because they may not be able to handle it in the mind of the cavalier, which is what this is. And if you look at, for example, um, Albert Taylor, Albert, excuse me, Albert Taylor Bledsoe's uh, book, his philosophical treatise, we, we we often focus on his is Jefferson Davis a traitor? Is Davis a traitor? But he wrote a little book entitled Liberty and Slavery where he talked about this conception, and it's basically the Virginia ideal of liberty. Not everyone was suited for liberty, in his mind. So there's that. 
There's that conception of liberty. And then we have the Quaker conception of liberty, which is actually very interesting. I think that a lot of libertarians today are more Quaker-oriented than anything else in how they conceive liberty. <clears throat> the Quakers, for example, as Hackett Fisher says, the protection of property was also a principle of high importance to William Penn. The seizure of Quaker estates for non-payment of tithes was condemned not merely as an infringement of rights of conscience, but also as a violation of the rights of property. In all these ways, the Quakers extended to others in America precisely the same rights that they had demanded for themselves in England. Many other libertarians have tended to hedge their principles when power passed into their hands. That sad story has been reenacted many times in world history, from New England Puritans to French Jacobins to Israeli Jews, who have cruelly denied to others the rights they demanded for themselves. The Quakers behave differently. They always remain true to their idea of reciprocal liberty, to the everlasting glory of their dominion. So this is what the Quakers believed in, reciprocal liberty. Every, deliver every liberty they demanded, as Hackett Fisher says, every liberty they demanded, they returned in kind. So if they demanded freedom of conscience, they would say, you get freedom of conscience. If they demanded freedom of private property, they would say, you have freedom of private property. This is a different concept of liberty. And I think that, if you look at this cultural underpinning of liberty and what that term means in America, you'll find the Quaker conception of it is dominant among modern libertarians. I demand private property, so I will give you private property. I demand freedom of conscience, so you will have freedom of conscience. I demand to be free from the uh, pain of war, of force, so I give you that same thing. I won't attack you. The nonviolent part of that. So this is an important understanding. The Quakers, Hackett Fisher says, radically redefined the rights of Englishmen in terms of their Christian beliefs, but they never imagined that they were creating something new. Penn and others in the colony wrote always of their rights as ancient and fundamental principles, which were rooted in the immemorial customs of the English-speaking people and in the practices of the primitive church. He says, Hackett Fisher says, this idea of reciprocal liberty continues to exist in the United States. It has changed in many ways, becoming more procedural and less, uh, less substantive in its conception. It has been appropriated by those who believe that the republic itself should not associate itself with any creed other than that of secular liberty itself. This idea of ethical, of ethical neutrality is profoundly different from the pure purposes of the Quakers. But in the modern form, the idea of reciprocal liberty still flourishes in healthy competition with other principles of freedom in America today. Now, last but not least, you have what the Celts and their conception of liberty, what he calls the freedom to have elbow room, to get out in the frontier and be left alone. It was the freedom from tyranny <laughs> and this armed resistance to tyranny that made the Celts and their conception of liberty interesting. And he uses people like Patrick Henry and Daniel Boone it's natural freedom 
natural freedom that the Celts wanted. And you see that even today in parts of the country. This is where the counties and the rural areas say, leave us alone. We just want to be left alone. We want to do what we want, just leave us alone. That natural liberty. So all of these all of these different concepts of liberty, all of these different concepts of liberty are important. But I think the most important one is to understand, or the most important thing to get out of this, is that three of those concepts of liberty, whether it's the Cavaliers, the Celts, or the Quakers, were in sharp contrast to the Puritan conception of liberty. That Puritan conception of liberty fosters large government. It fosters a government that will go and take things away from you in the spirit of the liberty of the community, the freedom of the community from that fear or the tyranny of circumstance. That is their concept of liberty. That is their construct that will take individual liberty away. However, the Virginians and their conception of liberty would also take liberty away from certain individuals who they did not deem uh, to be those who could handle liberty. And there's an interesting essay uh, that uh, Charles Sidnor, who's a great early uh, you know, middle America, uh, middle 20th century American historian, um, writing on the 18th century, he, he wrote a book uh, entitled uh, American Revolutionaries in the Making. And um, the final chapter of that was titled The 18th Century to the 20th. And the Abbeville Institute published this final chapter uh, in in 2014. Um, and he points out that this Virginia conception of liberty actually produced this hegemonic liberty, produced some of the best government in the American colonies. And he begins the chapter by saying, Judged by the quality of the men it brought to power in the 18th century, the 18th century Virginia way of selecting political leadership was extremely good. But judged by modern standards of political excellence, it was defective at nearly every point. As for voting qualifications, there were discrimination against women, poor men, Negroes. There was no secrecy in voting and polling places. Only in the only one in each county was spaced too far apart. The two-party system was not in existence. Local government was totally undemocratic. And few offices at any level of government were filled by direct vote of the people. Only Burgesses in the colonial period and not many other offices for many years after the Revolution. Such uh, modern refinements of political processes as the nominating primary initiative, referendum, popular recall, proportional voting, and mechanical voting machines were, of course, unknown. He says nearly every detail of the political process of 18th century Virginia has been repudiated. But at the same time, the men elevated by these processes have, be have come to be regarded as very great men. So why is this? And it's cultural. It's, what he says, essentially, is it's this conception of hegemonic liberty. He doesn't use that term. He doesn't use Fisher's term. But he talks about the homogenous culture of Virginia. He talks about the cultural standards of the time and how these men conceived of themselves and what they had to do. You see, because they demanded a certain, a certain amount of liberty for themselves, they would give it to others who they deemed worthy of it, and so because they, they thought they needed freedom of speech, that would be ensured for the, the, the culture of the, of the region of Virginia. 
or freedom of private property. They, they wanted to ensure that everybody had that because they had it too. And they didn't want to be a slave to another. They had this, and Fisher uses this, they had that term, a slave to another. So this conception of liberty is important. And I uh, recommend you go out and, and read this essay uh, because it's, uh, it's so important in understanding Virginia and government. But when we talk about these debates and this liberty, that liberty, I believe in liberty, what liberty do you believe in? You have to, you have to define that. Is it reciprocal liberty? Is it hegemonic liberty? Is it uh, natural freedom? Is it liberty of the community? What liberty are we talking about? What liberty are you demanding? Because if that is the case, if this is how we understand it, then our, our discussion of the issue will bear more fruit. And we have to understand that certain types of liberty are incompatible with each other. And so maybe in your community you want this type of liberty, but in my community that's not going to work. Decentralization is the only way to solve this problem. Long story short, it's the only way to do it. If you're talking, speaking of one liberty, I'm speaking of another, then they're not going to work, and either you're going to force your liberty on me, or I'm going to force mine on you, and that would not work. So let's have separate political communities, or let's have a structure, a decentralized structure that will allow for these differences, which is what the Constitution was designed to do. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClaney. <laughs>